What's up, everyone? Yes, it is I, your host, Natalie Morrison, and you might be thinking, wasn't this called Swim Masters? Well, yes, it was, and you're definitely in the right place. We decided that we wanted to give the podcast a bit of a makeover, and we're so proud to introduce to you Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast. Don't worry, it's still the same content, still the same hosts. We just wanted to take this to the next level. And we're excited that you're joining us on this fantastic journey. The episode that you're currently listening to was recorded before the name change. And I just wanted to let you know that you are in the right spot. So keep on listening. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for all new episodes of Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast coming soon. Welcome to Swim Masters, a podcast dedicated to help connect, grow, and support women in the music products industry. I am your host, Natalie Morrison. The Smart Women in Music Fund was established in 2018 by Robin Valenta, Dee Dee Hyde, and Crystal Morris to expand diversity, inclusion, and support for women in the music product space. Twice a month, I will sit down and host virtual conversations with various women across our industry to help foster mentorship and growth. Now, without further ado, Let's dive in. Hello, hello. Welcome back. It's your host, Natalie Morrison, with another episode of Swim Masters. Hope you're doing well, excited, ready for another conversation. I know I am. Today's episode, I will be sitting down with Laura Whitmore. You might know her from around the industry. She runs the Women's International Music Network. She hosts the She Rocks Awards at the NAMM show and other showcases throughout the year. She has worked for Korg, and she even started her own agency. We're going to dive into that and so much more. So sit back, relax, and let's get started. Hi, Laura. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, how are you? I'm all right. Just trying to stay healthy and sane. Yes, aren't we all? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So I'm excited for our conversation today because I think you have a really interesting career journey that's worth sharing. Where did you start in the industry and where are you now? It's funny when I was, I'll start a little bit further back than that. When I was a teenager, I really wanted to go to school for music. I wanted to go to Berkeley, actually. And my parents, who were business people, were like, no, we're not, we're not letting you go to Berkeley. <laughs> so I ended up going to Hofstra University in their music business <laughs> program, which back then was pretty rare. There weren't a lot of music business programs around, you know, maybe three or four in the country. And so after I graduated from that program, I got a job at CBS Records in Manhattan, working in their direct marketing department, which was the Columbia House record club. And it was funny because at that point I was more focused on music than I was on business. So I didn't really know how epic it was with the people that I was working with were pioneers in direct marketing. And later when I went back to school for my MBA in marketing, they were in my textbooks, like literally pioneers in direct marketing. So hindsight, you know, I was like, wow, well, I should have taken more advantage of who I was working with. (laughs) But I was at CBS Records for a couple of years, and then I got the job as a marketing assistant at Korg USA. I think the year was 1988 or 89 or something like that. 
I started out working with Mike Covens, who was at that point the vice president of marketing. It was just the two of us in the marketing department. It was right when personal computers were like coming into the world. So, you know, I would do things like type out the press releases and clip slides to them and make the media kits for the show. When you look back, you're like, how did anybody get anything done? It was really great for me because it gave me an opportunity to learn so many different aspects of marketing because the department was so small and the company was really pro-education. They would send me to workshops and seminars and I learned all kinds of different programs. I learned how to do desktop publishing. I was the first webmaster for Korg, so I learned HTML so that I could talk with our web designers and fix little things myself and all, you know, so over the, I was there for 20 years. So over those 20 years, my role changed quite a bit, but I got to have a really deep knowledge of the music products industry and, you know, developed in so many ways, was the editor of their magazine. I managed the, the advertising agency relationship, just like a million a million things (laughs) over the years. And as I mentioned, during that time, I got my MBA and I was the marketing manager at Korg for a good chunk of time. And then I left in 2008. So I had been there for 20 years and moved out to California. And that's when I started my own agency, Mad Sun Marketing, pretty much doing the things I had been doing at Korg, but for other companies. And I, I have to admit, like it was, It was tough. It was really tough to get that rolling and work from home where I I had been used to this really strong team relationship. And I left when I left Korg, I had a big client already. So I, I wasn't starting from zero at the beginning. But maybe about a year in, I got to the point where I was like, I can't do this. This is I'm not enjoying this It's too hard. And then I sort of like coincidentally got a guitar amp client. And It was a small client, but I enjoyed it so much. And I sort of took off from there. I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. Maybe I just need to find the clients that excite me. And maybe I can figure out this work from home thing. And and I made sure that I socialized in other ways, you know, had lunches and went out to see shows and things like that. I kind of learned the hard way all the things about A, running your own business and B, you know, figuring out how to work from home and not be feel so totally isolated. The agency like progressed for many years, working with some really amazing companies and, you know, enabling me to learn a lot of new things and move into the digital age and work with, you know, younger people on my team and just keep really current. And that's been what I had been doing for the last 12 years until two months ago when I actually accepted a job as a vice president of marketing for a company called Positive Grid. So And now I am spearheading their international team, and it's been really exciting and energizing for me to work with them. The leadership is so smart, and the people on the team are so great to work with and eager and smart and innovative that it's fantastic for me, and it has enabled me to really move forward in my knowledge of what's happening now in marketing and how to apply that to our industry. It's been exciting. That's me in a nutshell. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) When you decide to start your own agency, what did you do to really put your business out there to try to get clients? 
because you came out of Korg and you had or already had a big client. So did you have any tactics that kind of helped you build that business? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. You know, you think, okay, at that point, I had been in the industry for 20 years. You'd think I would know so many people, but really my role at Korg was not like public facing. So I didn't have a lot of relationships with other companies and individuals in the industry. So, I mean, what I started to do was, you know, I built a website for Madson. I started doing more networking in the industry. I think I got that guitar client because somebody on my Facebook, you know, feed mentioned that they were doing something with them. And I was like, hey, do they need marketing? You know, so I was just a little bit more out there. And then at one point when I felt like I needed to be more visible, I did a series of articles about the industry for, I think it was Music Inc. magazine. And, you know, over the years, I realized, you know, I've, I've made myself very visible with many of the projects that I do. And it, to me, has all been about having a massive network, really nurturing the network, and then creating information that's visible online that is like expert information. I think there was one point during maybe the last five years that I was like, oh, you know, I, I learned that the business is sort of cyclical. It goes up and down. When I was in a downtime and I'm like, how can I get myself out here? I don't want to do like an ad, you know, that's not to me like a position that I want to put myself in. So I wrote some blog articles about things like, you know, 10 tips for disruptive marketing or just like things that I thought were thought leadership pieces. And then we boosted those out into the world of like, you know, NAM members and things like that. And that definitely helped me get more business. So I've kind of learned maybe not the obvious ways, but the ways to put you at top of mind for people who are looking for marketing support. And there have also been like several individuals who have referred like quite a bit of business to me who have been my champions. So that's been really great and helpful. People that are also out in this world a lot who are like, oh, you need marketing? I know who you should talk to. And sometimes it fits and sometimes it doesn't, but it's always, you know, a great conversation to have. And, you know, sometimes I might refer them to somebody else and pass it along, especially now that I'm not really doing, you know, agency business. I've been referring people to other great folks I know in the industry. So I think the networking is really, really key. Yeah. I've learned that from the beginning is you got to network, build that network. (laughs) Yeah. And you have to like work at it constantly because I feel like it's like I mentioned, it's all about top of mind. Like you never know when these people are going to have their need. So you have to find a way to be in front of them. That's like not pushy, but it has like shows your value, you know? Yeah. And it can be really like networking can be really uncomfortable for some people, but you just got to like, got to keep doing it gets easier. Yeah. And I I never found it uncomfortable. I always felt like everybody has value. It's really funny. I actually taught a a networking workshop to Berkeley College of Music students once. And it was so interesting because people do fear networking. But from my perspective, you know, it's all about figuring out what you have to contribute to each other or just like tucking that relationship in your back pocket like you never know when that need is going to arise. And so from from my perspective, you can't go into a networking situation thinking like, oh, I want something from this person. It's better to, you know, flip that and think, you know, what can I offer this person? Is there a way that 
you know, we can build like this mutually beneficial relationship so that they're totally open to, you know, helping me and I can help them in some way. So, and, and a lot of times, you know, I'm really about, I, I'm, I'm really about positive business karma. Like if there's something I can do for somebody and it's no skin off my back and I can help them, I always feel like that comes back around in some way. So I, I, I just approach networking as, you know, I, I just love building relationships with people anyway. I don't approach it as, hey, I'm trying to get something from this person. Like, how can I do it? You know, that to me is really the wrong way to approach networking. They can also sense when you're networking to get something out of them. For sure. So you want to be as genuine as possible. But I would even do things like, obviously not now, but, you know, I've traveled quite extensively and there would be times when I'd be like, oh, I'm going to be in this city and I have like an afternoon open. I wonder if there's anyone I know in my LinkedIn network that I could go have a cup of coffee with, Yeah, you know, and I would just reach out to people and say, hey, I'm going to be in town. You're around like not to get anything from them, but just to build the relationship because I'm a firm believer in in in-person interaction. So yeah, and I have definitely created much stronger relationships by spending in-person time with people. Yeah. So stemming off of the fact that you created your own agency, built your own business, did that help you then launch the Women's International Music Network? I would say yes and no. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. When I launched the Women's International Music Network, I didn't think of it as a business at all. You know, I literally felt like there was a need in the community and somebody needed to do something. And I just said, hey, I'm just going to do this thing. I didn't really plan it out as like, oh, what's my five-year plan for this? Or, you know, how are we going to fund it or any of that? So, you know, the opportunity arose. I'll tell you a little bit about the history of that. So I was working for, I guess, Future Publishing was the owner of Guitar World at that time. And I was working for them writing a blog series and doing some marketing consultant. And my blog series was focusing on female guitarists, which nobody was covering at the time. And as I started talking to all these women in the industry, and not just guitar players, but, you know, business people relating to guitar somehow, I realized like, wow, there's this like huge underrepresentation in the world. We don't know each other, you know, the women in the industry, other players don't see other role models out there. You know, I just felt like, wow, like the visibility and the interaction between women in the industry was really low. So an opportunity came up for me to produce an event up at this really beautiful resort called Full Moon Resort up in the Catskills of New York. And I called it the Women's Music Summit. And I had like all these women come and do workshops and we did jams every night. And it was really an incredible event that was a huge amount of work. So in hindsight, it was like insane to start this whole thing off with this like three day sleeping at the resort (laughs) event in the middle of nowhere. But I got like a lot of support for it. And it was really tough to produce. But it it made me sort of focus on this idea of, wow, we need to do more to connect women. Uh, So I think that was in maybe like August or September, probably of 2012, maybe. And then Nam was coming up and I was like, wow, like I, I just want to have a breakfast to get the women in the industry together. 
And, you know, when I thought about that and sort of like formulated that into the She Rocks Awards, I was like, oh, well, we need a website for the home for this because it shouldn't just be about this one event. There should be like more. And that's sort of what led to it. It was just me going, oh, there should be more. (laughs) (laughs) And look where it is now. Eight years later, there's more for sure. Um, And it's really grown and we have a lot of people who help us and you know, it's been interesting lately because we're like, wow, everybody's home. Like, what do we do to help women? What do we do to help people? Um, we're sort of all in the same boat. But, you know, we have a few things going on and we have some more coming up. So, you know, we're doing our best to to keep the interaction going. What was the transition point from, because you mentioned that you created a breakfast at one of the NAM shows. How did that then transition into the award show that it is today. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. So for two years, we did a breakfast. And the, it, the first year we did it, I wasn't even expecting to have any performances there because I had no money. You know, I literally was like, oh, I want to do this. I don't want to charge anyone to come. And I am asking people to show up for, for nothing. And you know, what can we do? And so I had gotten Orianthi to say that she would be there to accept an award. And then she volunteered to perform. She's like, how about if we perform? Wow. So after the first year, I was like, oh, this is so interesting. Here's this idea of doing this intersection of awards and performances and, you know, an energizing event. So we did the second breakfast. We had some more performances. And incidentally, the the Command Sisters performed. I think they sort of opened up the show that year, that second year we did the breakfast. And then the third year, Nam came to me and said, like, hey, we have this room, this ballroom that we have set up for the Tech Awards. Like, do you want to use that setup for the She Rocks Awards on Friday night instead of doing your breakfast on Friday morning? You know, we'll let you use the space for free. You'll have to pay for like all of the personnel to run everything but I didn't have to pay for like the stage and the lighting and the screens and all of that I was terrified I was like oh my gosh here I am doing this breakfast event that maybe costs like ten thousand dollars to do like we were so frugal about it and now we're moving into this idea of doing this event that's going to cost us like you know fifty or sixty thousand dollars to produce and you know I really thought about it and I was like well if I don't take advantage of this opportunity, I might never have it again. Like, I think I have to go for it. And actually, there's this guy on our board. His name's Rob Christie. He's a producer. He actually runs Republic Records Studios right now. And I got connected to him at some point through an event that I did. And he was so helpful to me that year when I jumped to the evening event because he knew so many people. He helped me get the bangles. You know, he helped me bounce ideas around and he understood more about you know, sound and production. And I also, you know, we had to really push getting more sponsors and we sort of learned as we went, but it was, it was a huge leap of faith to think like, okay, like, can we jump from this like low pressure breakfast event to this huge production? We had some stumbling blocks, but it really enabled us to blossom into the event that we are right now and to be like this important fixture you know, during the trade show. And it was, you know, it was really Nam seeing that this event could be, you know, so meaningful to people and giving us that opportunity that led us to jump that quickly and grow that quickly. 
Was the Bengals the same year that you honored Colby Calais? I I think it is. Yeah. Because I was there. I I helped volunteer and I I think this was the same year. I helped you volunteer and I tried to live tweet and post on social for the event and the Wi-Fi in the room didn't work so we couldn't live tweet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like I said, like we had a lot of growing pains. Like we learned a lot. We and it, it it was tough because when you do an event in a hotel, they want to charge you like ten thousand dollars to have Wi Fi in the room. It's like insane. Wow. You know, so we're we were thinking we we don't have the budget for that. That's not something that we can spend our money on. And now you're at the House of Blues. Yeah, now we're at the House of Blues. So, mm, how many years have we been at the House of Blues? Maybe three. And it's been really great because having a space that's set up for sound and performance has really enabled us to migrate the event to like a, a whole nother level of, you know, professionalism and production. And like this past year, I personally felt was the best produced event we've ever done. You know, we added a lot of video content. The performances were amazing. We were able to just have the flow of the event feel more tight, I guess, is the way to put it. But, you know, we're learning. We've been learning all these years, too. Like, I've hired event production professionals and sound professionals. And, you know, you get to the point where you're like, okay, I've got, like, all these pros working on the event. Like, we're, we, we should be a pro event. And we, I really felt like we were this year, like, the best professional production we've done. So, But also the most expensive She Rocks Awards we've ever produced. <laughs> That does come with the territory, unfortunately. Yes, it does. And, you know, I've sort of learned, I was going to say this earlier, like, you you don't really know what you're capable of until you're challenged to go there. So that year when we jumped to Friday night, I was like, can we, can we do this? Like, you can't even imagine how much anxiety and, like, stress I had because I didn't actually know if we or I had the capability to A, like get the money to fund this and B, actually produce an event that big. So I kind of feel like, you know, you step into the role when you're like forced to do that and you have to take that leap of faith or you're never going to grow. But it's right. still, <laughs> it's still all around terrifying. Oh, yeah. And every year I'm like, nobody's going to come. Nobody's going to buy tickets. Everybody buys their tickets at the last minute. Makes me crazy. We'll be like a week before and there'll be half the house is still not sold. And then all of a sudden it's sold out. It's just so bizarre. Yeah. That's with every event that I've learned. I know. When I was at Corgi, when I used to produce events, huge events, like, you know, we did like, I I don't remember what year, maybe it was the 30 or 35th or 40th, I don't know, anniversary of Marshall Amps. And it was a huge event at the Grove. And, you know, we had Eric Johnson play and, you know, just like, like tons of people. And, you, you know, you're always like freaked out. And I always say that producing events is 95%. What did I get myself into? And 5%. That was awesome. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, but everybody's like, while it's happening, they're like, oh, you must be like so excited. This is so great. And I'm like, I'm working, you know, I'm like thinking about the next thing that's going to happen and praying nothing goes wrong. But I will say this year at the She Rocks Awards, I actually enjoyed myself because I thought it was so great. So yay. <laughs> yeah. We got to that point. That was the first year ever when I wasn't like literally freaking out every minute. <laughs> So 
Stemming off from the She Rocks Awards, you launched the initiative for Girl the Album. Can you go into the vision behind that? Yeah, Girl the Album. You know, it's funny because even right now, I'm like, it's still not done. Is it ever going to be done? And I, it's so close to being done that I'm like, okay, we have to just push through and finish this. But the whole idea, it's it's another one of those random things that wasn't like fully thought through from beginning to end, but felt like the right thing. And maybe, uh, maybe I'm good at my gut, trusting my gut. I don't know. I was at a songwriting retreat in Martha's Vineyard with my co-writer, Jenna Payone. And we had a little bit of grumblings about what was happening at the retreat. We didn't agree with, agree with. So we went to a bar to get a drink and have lunch. And we're sitting outside, beautiful, you know, view of the marina and all that. And we're having margaritas and we're, we're just talking about stuff. And I think I had just interviewed Amy Lee for, I was doing some live interviewing for AOL Build. And she had just released a children's album. And I thought it was really great and cool that she was doing this, you know, pivoting and doing this children's album. And we were just talking about how great it would be to work in that space. And we sort of simultaneously came up with this idea, like, well, you know, what if we did an album of like original music that was, you know, empowering for girls? And the idea really blossomed super fast. We actually, like, after that, we went to a coffee shop and, like, wrote the first song for the album, like, right then and there, like, that minute. And that, actually, that song actually made it onto the album because, like, some of the earlier songs didn't make it because they were maybe focused a little too young. You know, the idea for the album has migrated into more of a pop album that is really accessible to everybody, but it's focused on, like, you know tween to teenage girls but like a lot of the actual content of the song is just inspiring music and so over the last few years we've we've worked on writing and rewriting we've had meetings with disney we've like we've done so many things to develop the project and it, it's it's felt like it's taken a long time but it's actually probably really good that it's taken some time because where it has evolved to is so much more elevated than what our original creative idea was. So I'm so, so proud of where it's at right now. And we're just finishing up like the last three songs on the album. And we have a lot of guest musicians who have taken part in it and played or performed on it. So it's not about us as artists. It's about just this concept of having music out in the world to inspire girls and to be like just so focused on you know, giving them uplifting messaging about themselves and their place in the world. So it's it's in its final stages, and we're hoping this year it gets done. <laughs> and I have to tell you this, like, we were literally, so March, I don't remember the date, but it was like the weekend that I ended up leaving New York was the weekend we were supposed to go into the studio to finish some final vocal recording for this album and then it didn't happen because everything sort of fell apart in the world and everybody stayed home. So, <laughs> you know, it's going to be so amazing. We've shared some of the music. We've performed some of the songs at the She Rocks Awards over the last couple of years. And it's, um, it's been a wonderful project to work on and it has actually made me grow so much as a songwriter and made me, realize like my strengths when working with the right songwriting partner and Jen is really great to work with because she's super focused on pop and like what 
makes a good pop song. And I'm more of like a folky writer who doesn't care about that, but we kind of balance each other out in a cool way, you know? So, you know, some of the songs, Jenna came up with the initial idea and then we worked on it together and some of them was the opposite, but it's always been really like respectful and great to work with her. And we've actually written some stuff that are not girl songs, but... (laughs) We're sort of trying to focus on finishing this before we get on to the next thing. But yeah, it's been cool. That's exciting. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, thank you. And I've heard a couple of the songs from the awards and stuff. But I remember when you launched the, I think it was a Kickstarter or something. (laughs) Yeah. We're getting there. We're getting there. So anybody who invested in us, I'm telling you, it's going to happen. You're going to get your final music really (laughs) soon. So many things happen in between, like our producer, who has been great, got signed to like a major label and he has been working on like huge projects, you know, like Demi Lovato and stuff. So we're like, we're trying to get him to squeeze in some time for us to like finish this thing. And he's like, oh, talk to my assistant. And I'm like, wow, I knew you when you were like working out of your, you know, basement (laughs) doing demos. (laughs) But hey, he's been amazing. So yeah, but that has held us up a little bit as well. But that's okay. Like we all, we all have our thing. And I'm happy for him that he's he's doing really great stuff. So one last question. Do you have any lasting advice that has carried you through all your career transitions? Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. So I'll tell you a little anecdote. When I was at Korg, there was one point in my career, I think I was kind of really focused on executing and getting stuff done. I had like so much work to do and very deadline focused. And I was kind of like bitchy, maybe not the most pleasant person to work with. I know it's hard to believe. (laughs) And somebody said something to me like, what's up with you? Like, why are you being so bitchy? And I was like, wow, like, am I? Like, let me think about that. And at that very moment, this book came out and I heard about it, maybe on NPR or something. It was on the New York bestseller list called The Power of Nice. And so I grabbed that book and I read it. And it was all about how like being nice in business can lead to success and that you don't have to be like a cutthroat business person or totally focused on your bottom line or you know, just such a go-getter and you can redefine like what success means for yourself. And part of the book had things where you practice being nice to people like, Hey, you know, every day compliment somebody on something, you know, go to, when you go to, uh, you know, the mini mart to buy something, like say something nice to the cashier, like whatever. So I, I started practicing that and it actually helped me it helps in my networking because, you know, networking, like is a part of it is about breaking the ice. Right. And then finding like something in common with somebody. And it all, it, it just helped me refocus. Like, what do I, who do I really want to be and how do I want to interact with people in the world? And it, it helped me develop this idea that I mentioned earlier about, you know, positive business karma or positive karma in general, and just putting out, good things into the world and helping people and not expecting anything in return and doing things that feel like the right thing to do. And they may not be the right thing for the bottom line, but they're the right thing. And it has just really helped me 
in all aspects of my life to, you know, be more of that person who is more thoughtful of how my interactions affect other people and how I can be more helpful to people in, in my business, in the world. And, you know, a lot of times I'll do workshops with college students and stuff. And I talk about that because I think nobody, nobody really talks about how are you going to approach the world? How is the world going to see you? Like, what is, what is your space going to be like? Is it going to be a space of kindness or a space of like, what can I get from you? And I've kept that with me ever since. And, you know, there's some things and some people that I'm like, okay, this people, like this person, I want to help them. Like, what can I do for them? And then there's sometimes like, I get, do get turned off a lot when somebody comes at me really hard asking for something. <laughs> but, you know, I think that to me, it's sort of like this nebulous idea of, you know, putting out positivity into the world and how you can approach like what you do in business from that place of kindness and positiveness and contribution. And I just think like whether you are trying to use that to get ahead in business or not, like you benefit from it in so many ways that it's, you know, it's just mentally more helpful. It's, I think, you know, it's easier to network with people when you're not asking them for, you know, all those things we talked about. So, so that's sort of my, one of my tenets of, you know, my business style is coming from that point of, you know, positivity, kindness, and, you know, even headed thought, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm going to check that book out. Yeah, check that book out. The Power of Nice. It's cool because the covers looks like a smiley face. It's like yellow with a smile on it. And really, it's a very short book. It's not too deep, but it's, I tell people about it all the time because it affected me so much. And I think it's more relevant than ever to the world. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. I, I, you know, it's always fun to talk about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you always hope somebody cares what you have to say. <laughs> I care. Thank you. You've been such a mentor to me. So I thought that your story would be helpful for a lot of other people. Thanks. Yeah. It's a different perspective on the industry and what you can do within the industry, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny when I started in the industry, in the musical instrument industry, I never thought about this industry at all. You know, when I went to school for music business, I was like record labels, you know, let's be cool. And the musical instrument space wasn't even on my radar one little bit. I mean, I sort of fell into it because of that job at Korg my advisor from college referred me to the job. I never would have thought about it. And I think that there is, you know, it's, it's what you make out of it, but I think there's so much opportunity in our space, but also, you know, in business, I kind of feel like there's a lot of doors you can take. There's a lot of paths you can take. And part of it is that idea of redefining what excites you, what's success mean to you. Like I wanted to be a rock star, you know, now I'm like, eh, I could do my music, but it's more fun to me to come up with like a really great marketing campaign than to perform on stage, you know? And I'm like, okay, as long as I'm creatively engaged, then you got to be open to opportunity and different paths. I feel like my, my career paths have been a little windy and twisted, but in a good way. 
I'm never bored ever. Right. Your career is never a straight line. And I, I think like, you know, it's the whole thing about the music industry. There's no, there's no path to success. It's not like becoming a doctor, right? Where you're like, okay, you go to medical school and then you, you intern or whatever. And you have this whole path to like, you know, what you need to do to be successful. Like we don't, we don't have that path. We have to constantly be figuring out what that path is. And you know, I think just training yourself, being open to opportunity, constantly learning, constantly networking, and also like just following through with what you say you're going to do is like the key, the key, my keys to success. <laughs> well, there you have it, everyone. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you so much again. If anyone wants to learn more about the Women's International Music Network, they can go to thewomen.com, T-H-E-W-I-M-N.com. The Women. Woohoo! Thanks for listening to this episode of Swim Masters. Don't forget to follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on all new things swim. We'd love it if you'd share and leave us a review. If you would like to learn more, please visit www.smartwomeninmusic.org. This episode was co-produced and edited by Stephanie Lamond and Natalie Morrison. See you next time.